Here's the thing. Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. I'm Honey German. And I'm Carolina Bermudez. And, and this, this is Life in Spanglish. And you know we're cooking it up in here. We got that arroz con pollo waiting for you. Why are you looking at me so confused? Because I'm like, what we cooking? We don't have a stove. <laughs> you got the bajo. I'll get, you know, the, you got the mangu. We got it all for you at Life in Spanglish. I need a sancocho if I'm getting any type of food. Listen and follow on the iHeartRadio app or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Movie Crush Friday Interview Edition. And this week, everyone, you are in for a treat because I know from lurking around Facebook with the Movie Crushers that uh, The Princess Bride is one of the most beloved movies in, for our listener base. The Crushers love it. I love it. Everybody loves it. I mean, let's be honest here. It's just one of the great, great, um, lovely, feel-good, sweet, romantic fairy tale movies of all time. Uh, and I was really happy that my guest, Molly Coffey, picked uh, The Princess Bride. She's great. Molly is a local production designer who I met a few years ago, everybody, when I naively thought that I was going to go out and make a movie. And uh, I thought I had a little money in place and I had a script and I had some actors on board. And I started legit interviewing people and going to locations and Molly was uh, her name was passed along to me by my producer as production designer. She said he's like you got to meet with Molly. She's great. I met with Molly. She was great. And although that movie did not pan out, obviously, um, we hit it off. And Molly's just super cool. And we became Facebook friends. And I really uh, over the past few years have followed her career via Facebook and um, and just think a lot of what she has to say about the world and about. Uh, women in the film industry and in society at large. She's uh, she's just really terrific, and I appreciate her point of view. Uh, she's also friends with um, Raymond and Craig and Karen, who I've had on the show, and Scotty, and uh, just has deep roots here in Atlanta in the film industry, and very talented, uh, very cool lady. So uh, I know you will enjoy it. Here we go with Molly Coffey on The Princess Bride. Where are you from? I am from South Georgia. Okay. What part? Uh, this little town called Morven that's outside of Valdosta. All right. It's basically a produce stand and a caution light. Right. Um, it's It was very intense growing up. Really? Yeah. Well, I, I didn't have anything in common with anybody around me. Right. And I had parents that... I, you know, butted heads with. It's funny because, like, my parents were very difficult. And I have one sister uh-huh. who she... Uh, her reaction to our parents and, like, how difficult they were was to kind of, like, shut down. But my answer was to just, like, constantly fight and be yeah. abrasive. And, and yeah, it was it was a really crazy, 
crazy time growing up. So I ended up leaving before, like I didn't finish high school. Mm -hmm. And I I call it running away to join the circus. But then I went to uh, uh, work rigging stages for the Vans Warped Tour. Oh, wow. And I was like 14. I wasn't even like legal to... to, um, So you were a carny. I was. It was it was the best thing that it saved my life, to wow. be honest. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. Cause I was able to find people that I felt were like like minded. Yeah. Um, and so I figured out who I was. It's funny going home because I I know a lot of people are, like nostalgic for going home and seeing the people, but I'm not, not. the same person. <laughs> so it's like it's really I yeah. It's really crazy. Yeah. So the, you're you're saying that that small town wasn't full of like cool artists and waiting. No, weirdly and not it wasn't. <laughs> so Vans Warp Tour. What year? I mean, I don't know much about the Warp Tour, but what year was that? That would have been 2000. I mean, no, it would have been 1995. Oh, wow. Yeah, so back when punk rock was still good. Okay. <laughs> but, man, speaking of punk rock, like, punk rock has not, like, with all the political turmoil uh-huh. that we're, that's going on, punk rock is, like, letting us down right now. Can I, I know, because everyone thought this was going to be <laughs> just what punk rock needed. I uh, know. Is it not happening? No, not I'm, at all. I'm, like, so old and uncool, I have no idea what's <laughs> good anymore. There's, like, some weird Hispanic, like, Los Angeles SoCal stuff going uh-huh. on that's really cool, but sure. that's kind of about it. Nice. Like Morrissey <laughs> punk cover bands? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you uh, realize, like, you were in this small town, mm-hmm. and I think you saw the writing on the wall, like, it's a, almost a literal escape. Yeah. No, right? it was 100%. Because you have to get out, otherwise it's all I w- over. Yeah, I wouldn't. I don't think I would have lived through it. I was yeah. getting into fights all the time, and I was just really unhappy. And yeah. I, it honestly felt... Like, I really, I felt no connection to anyone. So it was, like, that feeling of isolation and mm-hmm. being alone. Like, it, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I don't think I would have lived through it if I'd stayed. I, I'm always interested when, like, how, how, why are you like your, why are, why <laughs> are you know. you? Why are you know. Molly Coffee? Like, if there were no influence, was there any influence? Uh, not, or did you literally strike out on your s- singular path? Not really. I mean, there were there was like a a little bit of a punk rock scene in um like in Valdosta, mm-hmm. and so I definitely was around some people that like punk rock, but it was still like like the we just drink ourselves into oblivion right. and we uh, are just kind of angry and misogynistic mm-hmm. and treat women like crap, but right. we don't know what we're angry about, and I was. Interest. I've always been kind of interested in in what motivates people, and so yeah. it's funny because we. So our parents, they were they were incredibly conservative and religious, so we uh-huh. were not allowed to watch television at all. Uh, okay. So my dad would even they would keep the television in my parents' room, like just unplugged in the corner, and then on Saturday nights they would bring the television out, and because my dad wanted to watch Doctor Who, <laughs> and um, <laughs> so the one cool thing, yeah. And so uh, so yeah, like I had an entire childhood that was basically just Doctor. Who and wow. maybe like what movie came on after um, on Saturday nights, but that was kind of it. So no movies in your childhood, kind of it wasn't a part of your childhood. No, but my parents allowed us to read anything that we wanted. Okay, like anything. So I was, you know, and I was in the second grade when I read Lord of the Flies. And, wow. And I was really obsessed with all the like Harold Schechter serial killer true uh-huh. crime books. And yeah. So I was really, I would read. I had a book of witchcraft that had this whole like front half of it that was about the history of witchcraft mm-hmm. and my parents were fine with me reading that despite being really so religious well my mom was a, a elementary school teacher before my parents were teachers yeah. too 
Yeah. My so dad she... was my principal in elementary school, and then my mom taught elementary school at another at another school. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so music was sort of your uh, savior. It was a hundred percent. Yeah. So I, I would work for about four months out of the year on the Vans Warped tour, and then I would just jump trains with like the crust punks and wow. travel around the the yeah. You're the most interesting person I know. <laughs> well, you know it. It that lasted for a time. Uh-huh. How many How many years did you do that? Kind uh, of thing? Often on like nine years, I Just guess. Hopping around the country, huh? Yeah, and I got really into photography. Like I got a a camera, and so I started taking pictures of mm-hmm. of uh, like music and stuff, which then kind of led into taking pictures of. That was like kind of the insurgence of like the alternative. I guess you call it porn, but it really wasn't. But it was just like like tattooed girls wearing like not a lot of clothes and posing. Right. And so I kind of got really interested in that because, again, I was really interested in like women and empowering them. Yeah. And it felt like this weird part of porn that was like empowering women, uh-huh. which I think that eventually I figured out that it's all a ruse. Like, Really? <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, there, well, there's crappy people in every right. industry. <laughs> exactly. So even if there were uh... – Empowering, um, yeah, like feelings initially that was co opted, yeah. Well, like I worked for Suicide Girls and uh, doing photography for them, and it took us a while to figure out that, like, it was like they claimed to be owned by a woman, but it was all just, yeah, a, what's the deal with them? Yeah, well, Missy Suicide was supposedly the owner, uh-huh. but there was there was just like a guy like behind the scenes, uh, she was like basically a hired actor essentially really yeah oh that's disappointing yeah i mean she was involved with the business but she definitely it was all just a pr stunt to to make it seem like it wow and then they decided uh it seemed really good for a long time and then they decided that um uh that People were competition, like some of the girls were getting like bigger than Suicide Girls with their individual brands. And so then they like retroactively wanted everyone to sign uh, basically like non- Non Non-compete or whatever. Yeah, but it was more like it was more like we just have the right at any time to decide something is competition. Right. Um, And so a bunch of the girls, there was like a whole wave of people leaving. Yeah. This was back when there were like 40 girls. Yeah. And now I think they're, I mean, they're in the thousands now. Wow. Yeah. So, did you work for them, or were you just in, uh, taking pictures? Uh, I just took freelance. Fo- yeah, just took photos. I okay. was one of their official photographers for a while. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. When did movies kind of start coming into your life? I was kind of happenstance. I so I came back to I came to move to Atlanta in 2005 because mm-hmm. I had this uh, uh, internship with a photographer because I was like, okay, well, I'm going to do this for real. Like, I need to quit and around and actually right. have an apartment and right. belongings and things. Um, and so I moved to Atlanta for this internship and I was on my second day and he started asking me to like wear outfits when I came. Uh-huh. Like, and I was like, no, I'm good. Thanks. Right. <laughs> and then I showed up the third day and he's like, no, you have to wear an outfit. And I was like, okay, bye. Wow. Thank you. And so then I just got. So many got, creeps. Yeah, there are, man. Yeah, I know. <laughs> So then I um I just got a job in a bar and I was working there with these really great friends and what which bar? I was Raging Burrito in oh, yeah. Decatur. Sure. I worked there for seven and a half years. Oh, cool. It was a long time. I haven't been there in forever. I, I don't know why. I used to go there. Yeah. Well they have a great patio during yeah, yeah. nice weather. It's been a while. And good margaritas. So um 
you're working there, and that's when movies sort of started. Uh... Yeah. Well, I, I started doing these, like, stop-motion movies with my—I met a friend, Chuck, uh, Chuck Thomas, mm-hmm. who I do everything with now. But I met him, and he had gone to school for film, and we started talking about a lot of stop-motion. And I was mm, like, well, yeah. I can start doing stop-motion stuff in my— uh, in my house with all of the equipment that I have. Uh-huh. And so we started doing all this stop motion stuff. And I got this guy, this local guy who I was a really big fan of a movie that he'd made, uh, Mike Bruni. And I asked him to come and do a voice on our mm-hmm. on our stop motion stuff. And so at the end of it, I gave him these really cheesy coupons. They were like, hey, I'll come and do free work on your stuff. <laughs> That's sweet. And uh, like two weeks later, he called me. He's like, hey, will you come and PA on this music video? I want to cash in this coupon. Yep. No, exactly. It took him two weeks to do it. Free back scratch. It was the best thing I ever did. I get there and I'm like, wa- I don't even make it all the way into the building. Like I'm walking up and there's this girl wearing combat boots with long hair and she's carrying all this really heavy stuff. And mm-hmm. I just see all these guys that are like standing around her and so I go and I start helping her carry stuff and yeah. and she was a production designer and uh-huh. so she absorbed me into the art department took me on to all these shows sponsored me into the, the coolest department oh yeah but it, always it, it was crazy because I one is it was like this weird industry where it didn't matter that I didn't have a college diploma or anything yep. that as long as I worked hard uh-huh. and was pleasant yeah absolutely. I could prosper and all these weird things that I'd done throughout my life between like working in factories machine welding or uh-huh. like even cro- I've done I cross stitched pillows on the walking dead you know like right. it's like all these weird crafty things that I've done throughout the years like has prepared me for this moment right so you're essentially had a resume without even knowing it yeah exactly that's one of the cool things about the film business um I mean I, I did go to college for six years in Athens and had a great time and then went to the film business and didn't do much but I remember thinking at one point when I was in LA I was like why didn't I graduate high school when I was 18 <laughs> and move the fuck to L.A. and just start because you certainly don't need a college degree. You no. don't need a high school degree. Uh, like you said, you just need to work hard. Yeah. And my career would have been a lot f- further along, but, you know, you can't retroactively, well, no. like, redo your life. For sure. Yeah. I I love meeting people who are really young and know that they want to work in the film industry because that's cool. crazy to me. Yeah. Do you impart advice? I, I mean, I try you're a to. Now. Sure. The <laughs> the big thing is just let you know. Ed, the big that I honestly still ten years now doing it have to learn is you have to kind of let things organically happen mm-hmm. because uh, if you if you try to like plan out your trajectory and what stuff and what is right. success to you and compare yourself to other people, yeah, this industry tough. doesn't work out that way. No, the freelance gig is uh, you have to. It's not for everyone. No. And you really got to, like, get your mind right with it. Yes. The feast or famine thing and, like, just when you th- – I know you know how it is. You think, am I ever going to work again at some points? <laughs> Which is probably and then the what I'm going rings. through now. Yeah, exactly. Oh, are you not working right now? Uh, no. It's it's 2018 was a crazy year. So I, t- I was trying to make a feature film at the end of 2018. Yeah, let's chat about that. Okay. So uh, it's called Kaylee Age 8. Mm-hmm. Is this feature film about? It's supposed to be my first feature that I was directing. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be about an eight-year-old girl with autism, and her oh, mom wow. suddenly dies, and she doesn't have any other family, and she s- steals her mom's ashes and goes on an odyssey with this colorful cast of characters to spread her mom's ashes to turn her into a mermaid. That sounds great. So did it's you like write a, it? I did uh-huh. with, with with my friend Chuck that I spoke of earlier. Uh-huh. Uh, thank God for him. Um, and so it it. 
it's something that I've done very publicly, like trying to make this film because mm-hmm. I I wanted to break down some of the barriers because you know we all project success, right? We don't really project, you know, talk about all of our. You failures. mean like on social media? <laughs> Is that not real? Well, like, but I think in the film industry, it's even worse. Like we, yeah. we see how we see other people's successes, and then we have our own struggles, and we're yeah. like, how does this person get to make stuff? It's like no, they, it wasn't easy for them either. Yeah, and I remember too. It's all, it's all different now. Like they didn't have social media really when or not really they didn't have it when I was doing that work yeah and so there was all that uncertainty and you know how it is when everyone's like you'd start to call people like are you working mm-hmm. like is anyone working but now on social media it's probably just drives people crazy when you're not working and you see like great day on the set with you know will oh, yeah. I am on this job <laughs> well totally and it because even man you know we the the union big studio shows that come here are so cyclical in how right. how busy it is and how not busy it is. So like even like everyone, you know, forgets that every single year they forget that the December's and January is really slow. Yeah. And so everyone's sitting around they're they're not working. They're like, oh but all this work is coming in January. It's like, yes, nineteen shows are coming in January. Right. But we have so many union members right. that even though there was nineteen shows coming there, we really need about 60 at wow. one time to employ every single union member in this town. Holy cow. So it's, you know, it. there are a lot of people that are still unemployed. And yeah. it's, it's something that people have to, with the influx of work, they forget, I think, or ha- just have just joined the union so they don't know. They see it as like this pot of gold. Right. And they don't realize how... You have to save up money for the winter, and yeah, yeah, and, and then people move from LA, and you're like, "This is my town." It is. <laughs> Why but, are you taking my work? But we should, I, you know, it, that's it's one of those funny things because I, it comes from just anger of being unemployed, sure, but, you know, and it being hard, but which comes from stress. It does, but hopefully, we are also like getting better at our jobs thanks to some of the people. That, right. No, that's true. Yeah, because there there are a lot of people that didn't learn their craft before they were able to work on their first show because right. we just have so much work here. I know. Um, and we there, a lot of people here need to get better at right. their craft. No, I'm with you. Yeah. You can say that. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, so where, where's your movie now? Like, what's the status? Uh, it. We had a lot of failures. <laughs> um, we, uh, a bunch of our sets were underwater, so that was cool. Oh, no. Like, leading up to the the whole week, we had flash floods um, leading up to our first day of shooting. I also had some problems with a producer uh-huh. that um, we're now trying to legally untangle ourselves from. Okay, um, and it's and it sucks because I because I was trying to be so transparent in our failures for so long and how hard it was. And right, I, we have a podcast where we talked about the whole thing. Oh you know, yeah, like making it. Yeah, what's the name of that? Well, Atlanta Film Chat's the name of the podcast, okay. but then we did like a spinoff that was called The Pitch, where like uh-huh. for three years I've talked about trying to make this movie. Um, wow. But now, because of the legal stuff with the producer, that stuff I can't talk about on the podcast. And that drives me crazy because, like, I, sh- I like, legally shouldn't talk about it right. until all this stuff gets figured out. Um, and there's also a really good chance in the end I'll have to sign a non-disclosure agreement about it anyway. Right. But it – so it, 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 like, hurts my soul because, like, my mission is about being transparent. Like, right. to not be able to talk to everybody about what's going on. Is this – who's your lead actor? 
Uh, well, <laughs> who's your eight year old and now we probably had, nine year old? Well, we had we we had Brooklyn Prince uh-huh. with pushing that's not on the table anymore. Okay, so we because w- of just aging or schedules and uh, well, she's kind of she had a television show that she was then going into, and I don't think we would still after the television show be able to get her right. for the price that we were originally going to be able to right, get her for. Right, right. Um, but we have a casting agent in LA that. Actually, after we lost Brooklyn, like told us that she thought that we shouldn't have used Brooklyn anyway. I was like, "Oh, thanks," but you know, it's it, she has all this star power as an eight year old, which is hard to find. What has she been in? Uh, the Florida that. Project was like the big thing. Oh, that she got oh all the God. attention for. I can't even with that movie. I know. <laughs> I, I avoided it for a year and a half just because I knew. <laughs> yeah. And then finally, I I watched it. I don't know why, but I watched it on a plane. <laughs> And I was like, hi, I'm the 46-year-old sobbing mess. <laughs> I'm this big burly bear weeping yep. on the aisle seat. Yep. Such a great movie. Oh, wow. Yeah. Boy, that would have been a great get. Yeah. But she, but as our the casting director told us that we need to find the girl that our movie is the Florida Project for. Right. Like her narrative for so long was how great she was. And yeah. now everybody knows that's not going to be the narrative again. Right. So we need to have someone where. Like, Discover your own person. Yes. Yeah. So hopefully, you know, we're. We'll see. We need to have new dates of shooting, which we're currently on, you know, we uh-huh. got to get a lot of stuff figured out yeah. um, before we try casting again. We we did definitely entertain the idea of using a little girl that had autism, mm-hmm. but as people who, we already have a film where we have an eight-year-old girl in every single scene of the film, which right. means that we already can only shoot seven hours a day, essentially. Right. Um. To then introduce someone into that that has autism, we would have to, like, bank 10 days that are just like a wash, essentially, and we can't afford that. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah. I bet you're a great director of children. I try. Or a great director, period. But I I don't know. know. I could see you, like, talking, uh, speaking that language. Well, we, you know, it's, it's, uh, E.T. is, like, the big one that you see, Uh like, all the videos of of Steven Spielberg talking to Elliot. As an adult and talking to him uh-huh. and like, you know, it, yeah, I mean, I, I really, I think, you know, we can start getting into like art, but like art as a whole, especially when it comes to kids, mm-hmm. and they're smarter and they, they understand things and we should trust them with more than we do. Yeah. The Mr. Rogers theory. Yep. Absolutely. I, I remember when I had, uh, when I adopted my, my daughter, uh, John Hodgman is a friend of mine and he, he said, the only parenting advice I'll ever give you, he said, is to buy the books of Fred Rogers. Mm-hmm. And he said, that's all you need. He's like, he understood more than anyone ever. Yeah. As far as, you know, child psychology and like really the mind of a child. Uh, and of course, that movie. Oh, my God. Forget yeah. You talk it. about bawling. Yeah. And what crying. a uh, what a shame upon the Oscars <laughs> yep. that that is not nominated. Yeah. My God. I don't get it. The Oscars is <laughs> just further proof of what a sham that whole thing is. Yeah. No, uh, <laughs> no women, no women directors. I no. know it's it's like I don't know. It's like a half a step forward, ten steps back. Mm-hmm. I feel like. Um, did you see Eighth Grade? By the way, no, I didn't. And it played Atlanta Film Festival. I should have seen it. It's but. really, really pretty good. Yeah, I didn't see Jonah Hill's. Um, he had a kind of a similar film. Uh, was it mid nineties? Yeah. The yes. What, what was it called? I haven't seen it either. I think but it's I heard that mid-90s. was really good. Or I might. Maybe I'm wrong. But I think it's just sort of a similar thing, like yes. kids. Yeah. I just I love movies about kids like that are real. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Um What were the first jobs that you like? 
Walk me through your career in the art <laughs> department. What were your first gigs? Well, I I did a bunch of movies for free, which I you know is one of those things a lot of people don't want to do, but it you know you just meet as many people as you yeah. can, and and I just worked really hard. So I did I did a bunch of stuff with Fakewood Wallpaper, which are uh-huh. local guys, and I yeah I just did oh god three feature films mm-hmm. in a row for free, which is an insane amount of work. Right. And then uh, Amy sponsored me into the union and I had my first uh, on-set dresser job and Necessary Roughness. Oh, okay. And so on-set dressing, it's the person who's like in charge of the continuity, like on-set. Right. Like as opposed to dressing the sets behind the scenes. And that was the greatest thing that I could have ever done. And I did it for for about three years. But because you have permission to be on set, you also as an on-set dresser get to be by Video Village. Right. So it's like film school because it's special in television where there's a different director every single episode. Oh, yeah. You get to watch different directors God, work with the same that. crew, the yeah. same actors. Like It's interesting. Figure out ways to live within a world that like and production rules that exist, but right. then find ways to make their mark and find their voice in that. And it was like film school. It was the best thing ever. Really interesting. So you've probably seen like when a director, I don't really thought about that. When a director comes in and establish show like that, you've probably seen that done really well and very poorly. Yep. Both for yeah. sure. <laughs> uh, what's the best way to do it? Like just to not try and uh, rewrite everything and and not literally rewrite, but rewrite the process? Well, you know, people deal with um, with trying to be in charge differently. Mm-hmm. It's like the big thing. A lot of people come in like guns blazing, especially um, a lot of women because that's the environment that they've been in, that sure. they feel like they have to like come in and, and force everyone to respect them, which yeah. just doesn't work. Um, and, so, you know, so you have to come in and you, I don't know. It, there's like a way to massage the like egos on set to get mm-hmm. people to respect you. Yeah. Because you also need to be willing to listen to the people that are on the show constantly, right. which, you know, some people think th- that they just know everything. And, yeah. That's a life skill, though, yeah. like to listen. Yeah. And not to come in guns blazing. But and it's funny because some people would do storyboards, others wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Even um, this guy, Tim, who directed a bunch of episodes of Twin Peaks had this it was just like a piece of of lined notebook paper and it had like stick figures on it and uh-huh. that was like his version <laughs> and I was like okay like someone who's had the career that he's had and like this yeah. is still what he does that's awesome it makes you believe a little bit more in your yeah. abilities uh, and you also worked um, with, uh, with with Dana and Janet Varney on Stand Against Evil. That was just announced to be canceled officially. Oh, no. I know. Uh, Were yeah, you I, on all of that? I did all three seasons as a production designer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they've both been on the show. And, of course, I'm buddies with both of them. I just saw yeah. them in San Francisco at Sketchfest. Uh, and I remember Dana, when I mentioned you, said, you know, we're all going to be working for her one day, <laughs> which I thought I was like, you're probably right. Aww. And that's great. He's a great guy. Yeah. And he, Janet's just the best. He is. Standing as evil so funny and, and just how special it was. Yeah. Um, Because, again, talking about egos and Dana's really good at, I think partly because he's very excited about what he's doing because he's a fan first mm-hmm. and, you know, a creator second. But he is really good at using the people around him and their strengths mm-hmm. in a way that that isn't, you know, 
like letting people contribute to where we also all feel a level of ownership over right. what we're doing, which means that we care more and yeah. we give more. And he gave me a lot of opportunities to contribute to story that as a production designer, I, mm. you know, a lot of times you're just a cog in the machine and it, right. it eats your soul. But yeah, he gave us all like this, this like level of ownership over what we were doing that That's was great. Like, really special, which is why we kept coming back. Yeah. The pay was pretty terrible. Yeah. <laughs> You guys did a lot for a small, smallish budget. Yeah. I mean, there were, there were times that we, like, whenever I got the scripts for the third season, there was this uh, kaiju battle, essentially, with an oh, yeah. entire town made out of cardboard. And I knew as soon as I got the scripts that Ed, the producer, was going to try to cut it. Like, that was, I knew that that was coming. Yeah. So, <laughs> me and um, my art director, Matt, like, made all of these, like, drawings. We made all these plans of exactly how we could do it. Because you wanted to do it. Yeah, I wanted yeah. to do it. Are you kidding? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, so we had to come in with this proposal of this is how we right. achieve this. Don't cut it. <laughs> yeah, because we had, we had to figure out how to make it work so that. That's awesome. Yeah. And you did it. Yeah, we did. That's, and I'm sure Dana was gr- super grateful. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's really cool. In the second season, there was even an episode that uh, we – so we – at the end of the season, it was supposed to rain every single day. And uh-huh. we had like five days of outdoor shooting. And there was this big demon battle that was supposed to take place outside in the rain. And Dana wanted to put it in this antique shop just because the antique shop was there, which mm-hmm. – just was a ton of work for us and also just didn't do anything for the story. And I said, well, you give me like overnight to like come up with something different. And the next day I showed up, I had all these drawings and, and all this about this blanket fort demon baby (laughs) place. That was like a corn maze essentially made out of blankets and baby toys and stuff. And it um, like added to the story. It was really cheap, way less work actually than, than like clearing this Uh antique shop. Um, and he immediately came up with this idea for all these cocoons and stuff, but like giving me the opportunity, yeah. like the the bandwidth to to come up with something uh-huh. that made the story better, and then also gave me credit, like has talked about it a bunch about how it was me that came up with it, which I he doesn't I have to do, you didn't know. No, that was you. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that was a great episode. Yeah, it was. Yeah, uh, Mr. Tinkle Slayland. Uh huh. That's so cool. <laughs> um, well, before we move on to Princess Bride, I do want to uh, talk to you a little bit um, about. Women in the film industry, because mm-hmm. you, um, I'm Facebook friends with you, and you, uh, you always have a lot to say, which is you're laughing at me now. <laughs> no, I'm laughing at myself because of how I am opinionated. <laughs> no, but it's it's great. Like I think you're a voice I have really grown to respect, um, even though it's just been through social media, because you're out there. I feel like as a leader in that area in this community. And just, like, what does that mean to you? And what, what can you say to young women getting into the field? Well, it, you know, it's it's interesting. We're, we aren't seeing a lot of of shift in opportunity for women, right. like, with everything that's changing. We, we aren't seeing more. Yeah, but – and even we see these people that we get really excited. Oh, Ava DuVarney is doing this lab where she's allowing women directors mm-hmm. to, to come to this lab. But the women that get picked for those are the ones that already were about to be TV right. directors. It's It's not necessarily creating – more opportunity for women. But in all of this, and the why the narrative is important, and all of this, the thing that's come out of it is that women believe now that they deserve more uh-huh. and that they should speak out 
and ask for things. Right. You know, you're not going to get anything that you don't apply for. Like right. they, like they, a man usually only has to be 50% qualified for a job to apply for it. A mm-hmm. woman has to be 75, feel 75% qualified right. in order to apply for it. Same with like women are 70% more likely to have imposter syndrome that they don't believe that they deserve something wow. if they get it. So it the the thing that I think is important in all of this is that we we believe that we deserve to be there mm-hmm. which is just it's it's on all of us to continue to be allies to each other right. and and to Tell each other that that they deserve it and that yeah. they should try and go for opportunities. And it, it's you know I've always tried to. Women have been really impor- important to me in in my life as mm. mentors, and I've always tried to have fifty percent of my crews always be women, yeah. which is hard. Even in art department, you think that it's this, this creative field, but it's a lot of construction and painting and mm-hmm. carrying heavy things, and so it's still a department that's predominantly males. Yeah. So uh, women just have to be given opportunities. And, and I think being an ally, like where whether it is to our trans people in our lives or gay people in our lives or, you know, racial, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, like people are always going to listen to their peers more than the person that's just speaking out right. angrily because that's how, you know, people always argue if right. someone's speaking out that they're just – this this angry person. It's the people that are that are like side by side with them and friends with them, saying, "Hey, man, that's not cool." Yeah, that's going to make the most difference yeah, in all yeah. of this. And and yeah, we I think we just have to not be complacent, right? And and yeah, I think it's on to us for other people to believe in themselves. What can dudes do? Just like just like in a situation, mm-hmm. just be sure one if you're if you're hiring that you interview at least you know some women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, you don't necessarily, you know, women should always be the best person for the job if you hire them. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying to hire more women just right. because they're women. Yeah. So go ahead and shut the fuck up if that was your reply. Right. Out but, there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but you know, it, but, but, but give them the opportunity to interview for the jobs, yeah. you know, and like I said, like when someone makes a crappy comment or a, a racial slur or a gay joke or uh-huh. something just like be the person that's like dude mm-mm, yeah nope not cool yeah it will make a ton of difference yeah little changes like that yeah everybody I, doing their small part i was on a set in which a first ad continually would like shish me and talk over me and mm-hmm. and all this and it um i we were trying to work out a problem and i was asking a bunch of questions because i was trying to look out for the homeowner mm-hmm. whose home that we were going into sure. And the first AD basically like put his hand in my face oh my God. and turned to the key grip <laughs> uh, and Chris Birdsong, God bless him, turned to the key grip and said, why don't you take care of this for her? And he said, no, man, I think Molly has it. Yeah. And that was the fir- like the fact that he told him like, no. Yeah. That was when he finally like gave me a little bit of space. Yeah. It took someone else, like a dude that he respected right. to give me the space. Which is fucked up, but great that Chris stepped in at least. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm pals with uh, these comedians, Cameron Esposito and Rhea Butcher, and they uh, did a show. You probably know all this where they I don't know if it was in their contract or if they just demanded that a certain percentage of the, the crew was female and uh, or LGBTQ. And that was one of the things they were like most proud of in, in doing their show, mm-hmm. which was great. And I think if you're in a position of power like that and you can mandate stuff like that. 
because it's like you said, it's not like they were like, well, we'll have a C-rate crew, right? That's just full of women that we had to right. hire. Like they were, I'm sure it was great. Yeah, you know. And the the people that are qualified to do those jobs are out there. Yeah. And just think of of how inspiring it is to the people, the next generation of people coming up to see people that look like them or like them in those positions. Yeah. I mean, it's it's going to make real change. It's just not going to make it quickly. Right. It is uh, like Obama used to say. It's like steering that cruise liner an inch in one direction, <laughs> yep. and in 15 years, it'll be in a much different place. Yeah. Uh, well, that's great. You're a sheer delight. The movie <laughs> crushers are. Uh, we're preaching to the choir here. Yeah. They're a fantastic collection of human beings. Um, but you know, never hurts to say this stuff. <laughs> it's not like we're changing minds out there with this with this listening audience. Here's the thing. Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With Geico, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with Geico. It's almost better than sports. Hey, it's Ben, Henry, and Marcus, hosts of The Last Podcast on the Left. Our show's dedicated to uncovering hilariously horrifying stuff. And now we're only on Spotify. Join us. If you want. Obviously, we never force anyone to just blindly join us. That'd be crazy. But if you like stories about doomsday cults who do exactly that and more, please join us on Spotify. Visit Spotify.com slash last podcast to listen free. All right, Princess Bride. Yeah. Let's get into this delight. <laughs> uh, what was your, well, first of all, I usually set it up. 1987, everyone knows this movie. I don't know why I'm bothering. But uh, directed and co-produced by Rob Reiner, um, starring Carrie Elwise, Robin Wright, Mandy Patinkin, Chris Randon, uh Wallace Shawn. I just am laughing reading these names. Andre <laughs> the Giant, Christopher Guest, who I can't even look at. I know. Without laughing. Oh, my god. And gosh. he's so serious in this movie, and I still can't. Not laugh. Uh, from the William Goldman novel, he, uh, I guess, adapted his own book. And it's just one of the all-time classics now. It is. When it, did you first see it? I, I honestly am not totally sure. I, I wouldn't have seen it in the theaters, which it didn't do well in the theaters anyway. Yeah. It, it wasn't until VHS. Right. I, I had a VHS tape that where it had been recorded off of television oh, yeah. that I would actually keep with me all the time. Because, again, we didn't watch television at my house. Right. And I would go over to my friend Belinda's and bring house tape. and I would bring my tape and <laughs> we would so watch sweet. it. I mean, I, I have to have seen the film like 300 times. Yeah. It's, I don't, it's so funny, too, because, like, Buttercup is a terrible female character. So, like, watching yeah. it now is really funny. Um, but But still, like, it doesn't. It doesn't seem to bother me, but it. Well, I mean, it is that <laughs> it. It's that fairy tale trap, you it know, is. where the the damsel in distress can only be rescued by the man. It was 1987, and it was sort of stuck to that fairy tale thing. So, it but was. it is interesting that you're so like, you know. I know, but I still love it so much. <laughs> I know that's right. It's, it's a small conflict, and Robin Wright is is good in this. She is. She was just a kid. She was just a BB, 19 years old, I think, when she when they shot it. Yeah. But she and Carrie always are just 
so beautiful, both of them. And it's so funny even, like, later listening to her talk about it because she talks about just how cute he was. Yeah. And how, like, pitter-patter her heart was when right. they kissed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he was not known at the time. And um, they, uh, of course, cast him because uh, I, I bought the movie on iTunes or whatever, which they that comes with some behind-the-scenes stuff, which is cool. And Rob Reiner was talking about the obvious Douglas Fairbanks Jr., Errol Errol Flynn sort of look that he had, which was perfect for this. But here's the thing. Like, I, I never have thought Carrie Elwise was a great actor, but he's so good in this. <laughs> he is. But it's it's all larger than life, like yeah. all, of, all of their parts. I mean, but you can't, like, the sword fight. I mean, they, the amount. Unbelievable. The amount, like, they did that sword fight. Oh, yeah. The only stunt person that was in it was the little flip that he does. <laughs> which is like, so funny. That's such was, a funny bit. I laugh every time I see that because <laughs> they, like, basically stop. To do these two, like, you know, high bar flips yep. and let each other do it. Yep. And that scene is just, un, like, it's it's one of the best sword fights in movie history. It is. And it's so funny as a production designer now, like, you you study the sets and, mm-hmm. and like, the matte paintings behind oh, them. So and, great. Which adds to the magic of it. But as yeah. a kid, I, you know, I didn't realize that, like, what it was as right. far as sets. But, like, now it still, like, adds, I realize how much that was a part of uh-huh. how the like the fantasy oh, of totally. it. Oh, totally. Like if they had gone to a mountain and done it, it wouldn't have felt as magical. Yeah, which is interesting. And I made a note here, like uh, they did go on location in, uh, in the UK and like this movie is part beautiful, real expanses of like the countryside and then these so obvious <laughs> stage sets yeah. that just add to the fairy tale quality. It doesn't take away... Like, it looks corny. It does. But in all the perfect ways. I mean, if you look, you can even see, like, the line. Like, when they're at the bottom of the Cliffs of uh-huh. Insanity, <laughs> you can see the line where the water is, like, hitting the set, yeah, like, yeah. on the back wall. It's so great. It's clearly a tank that's, like, <laughs> just out of the edges of the frame. You can yeah. tell there are, like, people standing there. You can sense them. <laughs> but I love that, especially if you've been on movie sets and stuff. It's kind of yeah. an endearing thing, I think. It is. Uh, and they uh, – to confirm, like Rob Reiner said, they definitely, like every single part of that sword fight, they spent just weeks and weeks training. And it was so important to those two guys to to really learn it. Mm-hmm. You know, like you could tell Mandy Patankins just still talks so passionately about learning to fence yeah. for this movie. And it's one of the great, great sword fights. Really it good. Is. So uh, first of all, Fred Savage is just adorable. <laughs> he still is. <laughs> but, like, the cutest kid ever. He is. Uh, and it hit me last night with Peter Falk. Like, just what a time to be making movies when these legends were still, like, working. Yes. Like, the, some of these original uh, silver screen from the Golden Age legends were you could cast. And it just seems crazy to think about, like, oh, let's get Peter Falk. Why not? <laughs> you know? Yeah. As, as Grandpa... And I think they even had to age him up a little bit from the looks of it. Um, but the ensemble is just – it's almost like a sideshow or something when you look at everyone and mm-hmm. not just because Andre the Giant. It's just such a weird collection of fringe actors. Yeah. I mean if you – yeah. You look at specifically Inigo Montoya, uh-huh. uh, Fezzik, and Vaziri. Like yeah. oh, the three of them, them. <laughs> together is absolutely ridiculous uh-huh. and just – they had these incredible backstories, like of where they came from. Oh, really? And yeah, from well, the book or yeah, well, yeah, and uh-huh. that 
and they did kind of ex- expand it a little bit, change it a little bit for the, um, uh, because the the book was weirdly dark. Did you read that? I did. Like the book is, it's kind of crazy. It's one of the few that I would say that the movie is actually better than the book. Oh yeah. The big difference, like that, stands out between the book and the uh, and the movie is. So whenever they go to the pits of despair, uh-huh. it was in the in the book it was the zoo of death. Okay. <laughs> and it had five levels. And so he was on the bottom level and it had all these different uh animals in the, on the different levels oh, wow. where because uh Humperdinck was a hunter. Uh-huh. And so he would uh so he would keep all of these animals like predators that he could go and hunt. Like there was one a uh, level that had a cloud of bats uh-huh. and another level that has a bunch of snakes and but it whenever uh Inigo and Fezzik are going down to get him it takes them it might have even been weeks but I know it takes them days oh, to get really? to him because they have to go through basically all these like uh-huh. <laughs> beat all these puzzles and stuff to get down and yeah. fight fight all these different animals and kill them to and get down to him. You can't burn up that much screen time. No. And plus the pits the pits of despair just uh-huh. sounds <laughs> it's, all the names in here are so great. It's like a kid wrote it, you know, mm-hmm. which is kind of one of the delightful things about it, I think. Um God, Chris Randon is so good. He is. And again, he wasn't some big movie star. Like the casting in this film was just so genius. You know, people like Wallace Shawn this movie, like he kind of makes this movie in some ways, even though he had a, I mean, not small part, but he he famously leaves about midway through. <laughs> right. But And it's, it's even the, there was a, uh, with the makeup and the costumes, there was even like a plasticness, mm-hmm. especially to Chris Sarandon's skin was very weird in that movie. Yeah. Like how, like, I don't know, it, it, he just doesn't look like a real person, uh-huh. which also makes him a better villain because <laughs> yeah. you just don't think of him as a real person. Like, he's like a caricature. Yeah, he and, and Christopher Guest were so great. Uh, and Christopher Guest plays it so straight. I know. Which he's apparently like in real life. I've heard he's a very serious guy. Just funny as a filmmaker. I know. <laughs> um, but, I mean, he if you read interviews with him about all his movies, he's all about playing it straight. You know, every single thing he's done, he's he's always just like, no, no, no. Like, that's the comedy in it, <laughs> is that these dog show people are real. <laughs> and they're not, we're not going to make fun of them. <laughs> Even though it sort of feels like that. Right. He's, that's not what he's doing. Right. Um, but yeah, Chris Rannon's so great. Uh, I do want to talk about the, uh, that great camera gag when you first meet uh, Andre the Giant, Pentankin, and Wallace Shawn. Because I love a good... <laughs> like camera laugh. Right. And that first shot of them, every time I've seen that, I laugh out loud. Yep. Like genuinely from my gut. Yep. And it happened again last night. <laughs> it's such a funny shot of the three of them because of their sizes. Yeah. Uh, Andre the Giant is just such a presence. He is. Oh. Have you seen that documentary? Yes. It's so sad. It is, yeah. It, you really, so we uh, hear it when Jason Reitman, Rob, uh, Jason Reiner, J- John, Jason, Rob Reiner's son. Okay, I don't even. I don't know. Who he anyway, is. he directed Front Runner. He was directing oh, it okay. here in Atlanta, and so he actually did a, a reading of uh, of the Princess Bride screenplay. And was he this ha- the thing he did in L.A.? 
Yeah, but he did it here with his cast from Farmer. So it was like Hugh Jackman oh. and Vera from... Uh-huh. <laughs> and for me, like, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, like all... And uh, it was crazy the very first time that like Andre Fezzik comes out, even on that, mm-hmm. everyone... Like it got really emotional. So you went? Yes. Oh wow! Where was it? Plaza? No, it was at uh, someplace downtown. It was a a very fancy place. Weirdly enough, was like this a, Jason Reitman? Jason Reitman. There okay, you go. so he did this at, at LACMA in 2011, and um, he he does these a lot, like yeah. these staged readings with different yeah. people. And he had uh, for this one, he had Paul Rudd as Wesley. Uh, Mindy Kaling is Buttercup, which uh, this, didn't he have like Donald Glover was in he it? He did not have Donald okay. Glover in this one. He had Patton Oswalt as uh, uh, was it Vizini? Oh, that Vizzini. was yeah, that's uh, Wallace Shawn, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Kevin Pollock is Miracle Max, and then he had Carrie Elwise as Humperdinck, which I think was a nice <laughs> that's little really funny, yeah, nice little turn. He yeah. actually had him there, and then he had Rob Reiner do the grandfather role, and Fred Savage. Aww actually came and reprised his role oh as the little gosh. kid. But he does these readings a lot yeah. for, for movies and I've always just been like, man, how do you how do I get into that? Well when they when they did it here it was for money for Puerto Rico. Oh, like cool. all the money went to charity. How great was it? Was it I mean it was amazing. Yeah. And it was crazy because we freaked out about it and we got we got like six tickets to it and then Hugh Jackman like there, there weren't very many tickets being sold, and then Hugh Jackman like tweeted that he was going to be there, and then and it so sold out in like fifteen minutes. He was Wesley. Oh, okay. And who did the Andre the Giant role? I don't remember. But that was a sad moment. It was like a, yes, just because everyone was yeah had all the feels about the yeah whole thing. like how how do you not yeah <laughs> yeah he was uh, I mean I highly recommend that documentary to anyone. Who hasn't seen it? He was, by all accounts, a very good guy mm-hmm. and the gentle giant that he was known to be. And even in that behind-the-scenes thing I was watching last night, he was talking about how the world doesn't accommodate big either. He's like, big and small. And he's like, we're both sort of in the same mm-hmm. boat, weirdly. In the behind-the-scenes, did Rob talk about how he had to, like, because they couldn't understand what how he was delivering the lines. Rob yeah. <laughs> actually recorded all of the dialogue onto tape, and, and Andre would listen to it. And basically, uh-huh. so he was kind of just performing phonetically uh-huh. what Rob had recorded, like how to deliver the lines. Oh, interesting. Yeah. He talked about what good instincts he had, though, just um, as a performer in wrestling. And he just said he was so honest because he was untrained you know quote unquote untrained as an actor that he just said all his instincts were just so pure every time uh i know it's just <laughs> i don't want to cry it's funny for such a physical movie how many people were injured on that because andre's uh back was messed up yeah so they had to like kind of fake all of the stuff where Wesley's right. like on his back and then Wesley broke his toe during Oh really? Yeah. And so like whenever he rolls down the hill and they're they're oh having God. the whole like <laughs> as you wish. But at the bottom of the hill whenever they have their their conversation about uh uh like he like sits down on a log and then uh-huh. stands back up and you can see him like he has his leg out and he's like lifting himself up oh, with yeah. his arms because he was like favoring because he had just broken his toe and he tried to hide it for a oh, long like time. like he pushed through the scene? Yeah. <laughs> wow. But he didn't break it during the screening. He broke it uh, 
uh, Andre had this little cart that because he couldn't even fit in the van for everyone to go from set oh back. So they had like basically like a golf cart that was just for Andre. Uh-huh. And uh, I guess uh, Carrie was driving it with him, uh-huh. and they I don't know if they wrecked it or right. something, but <laughs> he broke. Yeah, but he broke his toe. <laughs> um, that scene, since you brought it up, the the roll down the hill, like there's so many great dumb gags and I say that like I think dumb jokes are the best thing in the world and that just kills me every time (laughs) when she just shoves him it's just such a like uh, I mean who thinks of something like that I guess it's Rob Reiner yeah and then she just like throws pitches herself pitches herself it's like there are way easier ways to do this come on it was so great and then all the you know the clearly like uh, post recorded ADR of them just going ugh And it sounds so phony. It's just so great. They just needed a Wilhelm scream. Right. That's all they needed. I'm surprised they didn't do that, actually. Uh, And that that, uh, physical comedy guy got me. And then the last, whatever, 20 minutes of that movie with Carrie Elwise uh, completely limp. Mm -hmm. It's just, they just milked so much comedy out of that silly gag. Yeah. But man, the be- the best part though is my name is Inigo Montoya. You yeah. killed my father. Prepare to die. Yeah, that is. I mean, yeah, it's like, one of the classic lines. <sighs> uh, he said that, and this ends up with so many quotable lines. Um, but Mandy Patinkin was talking about how just that has followed him his whole career, and he uh, he didn't get it the time. He just kept looking at the script, going, "I really say that a lot," <laughs> <laughs> but you don't know it's going to be an iconic film or yeah. line. Well, yeah, but some of the stuff that we even quote the most is even just uh What What are yours? Uh, well, even, uh, th- you know, there'll be rocks ahead. If there are, we'll all be dead. Right. Stop rhyming. I mean it. Anybody want a peanut? <laughs> or, so and then obviously the inconceivable. You keep yeah. using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Yeah, he says that people still to this day, if he's out in public and like drops his keys, someone will and picks him up, someone will go, inconceivable. <laughs> so great. Uh Emily, uh, my wife, hers is always if we're if something happens where just one of those couple things that's just super embarrassing that only your partner sees, she'll just go marriage. <laughs> that blessed arrangement. <laughs> like what's up with that? Such a, again, <laughs> these weird, weird choices. I know. Yeah, totally weird choice. Like where did that come from? I wonder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Surely that wasn't in the script. No, it, there's. I wonder if Peter Cook just came up with that. Right. Yeah, no, because, yeah, it w- tonally wouldn't have fit into the book, that's for sure. But it just makes that scene, mm-hmm. you know? They could have played it straight, I guess, but why would you have Peter Cook in your movie and not have him do a funny accent? Oh, that's <laughs> another big difference between the book and the movie was whenever they are at Miracle Max and he's going to make that big, that obnoxiously large magic pill. Oh, yeah, yeah. They, they have to go on a quest to find the ingredients in the book oh, to so bring that's them the whole back. Thing. So, yeah. So there's a lot of time passes in the book. that. Yeah. I have a love-hate relationship with Billy Crystal um, because my brother worked with him and he was, like, not the nicest guy in the world. Mm-hmm. So I've always let that kind of color my opinion. Um, but I love when Harry met Sally a lot and – I think that's like one of the legit great romantic comedies of all time. And he's just so funny in this. He and Carol Kane. It's just great. And practically all of that was ad lib. Yeah. They just let him go, huh? Yeah. He never did the same line twice. Really? Ever. Yeah. Like the mutton, it was totally him. (laughs) MLT. Yep. (laughs) Uh, They were the behind the scenes again. They were talking about during those scenes that Rob Reiner would just have to just 
consistently leave the set because he couldn't keep himself from laughing and ruining takes. So wonderful. Uh, some of my favorite lines, too. And there are a lot of good band names. I always joke about on stuff you should know about <laughs> band names. Um, Rodents of Unusual Size. Great yep. band name. I don't believe they exist. <laughs> uh, Unemployed in Greenland, I think, would be a great band Unemployed name. Unemployed <laughs> in Greenland. See, that's why I know that uh, that he has like a weird – he was really self-conscious about – the fact that they wanted Danny DeVito in that role. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and so it, it's something because that he took through the gag? whole film. Yeah, uh-huh. he, he took through the whole film that he was self-conscious the entire time oh. because he knew that they didn't want him. Huh. Um, but who could have, like, it's classic. Oh, he's, he's perfect. It, yeah. Yeah, I mean, is the, I mean the, the scene, you know, the very, very famous now scene of the wine and the poison, uh, I can't imagine. I mean, I love Danny DeVito, right? Dearly, but it's that is Wallace Shawn, one hundred percent. Yeah, no one else could have done that. It wouldn't have been the same, that's for sure. Yeah, that's such a great scene. <laughs> I, I would love to. Uh, I've never like printed out that section of dialogue and read it out loud. I bet it's. I bet it's pretty great, <laughs> just to read mm-hmm. uh, and to remember all that too. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, Gary Owens is great in that scene too. I think he's kind of the unsung hero of this movie he in is, some ways. Even with a stupid mustache. <laughs> yeah, that thing was <laughs> – Emily was remarking about that last night. Uh, but I think part of the uh, part of the thing with the sets that we were talking about looking kind of phony at times, that has weirdly allowed it to not age, mm-hmm. I think. There's something about it looking fake and make-believe that makes it timeless in some ways. Yeah. Well, whenever he jumps headfirst into the lightning sand, uh-huh. even as a production designer, I still don't understand why the sand doesn't fall when they open the gate for him <laughs> right. to fall. Like, I still don't understand how they did that. Yeah. And he wasn't originally supposed to, uh, like, he was supposed to just jump in feet first, but he said it wasn't heroic. And so he he jumped in, he wanted to jump in head first, so they had a stunt guy come in and try it, uh-huh. and then he was fine. And so then Carrie did it, and he they the first take, and that was the one that they oh, kept. That looked great. Yeah. But I don't understand, because if, if you have a, a trap door uh-huh. and you have, like, the, the mattresses and foam and stuff on the bottom, the mm-hmm. pads on the bottom— I don't understand why the sand didn't fall through when they opened the trap door. It drives me crazy. So they they stumped you as a production yes. designer, like how they do that. Yeah. Who do you know who was the production designer? I on don't. This? I Interesting. should. Uh, that might be the kind of thing where you I could know. find out, Molly. I you know. Could get in touch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, here's another one of my favorite lines that I think doesn't get enough attention is uh, Chris Sarandon's "Please consider me as an alternative to suicide." <laughs> 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 it's just such a funny line. Uh, and then uh, when he's being uh, tortured on the uh, machine, what's the machine called? Do you remember? Uh, it's just called the machine. Oh, is it really? Yep. When he cranks it all the way up and just the whole valley, like, here's that whale. <laughs> Montoya says, that is the sound of ultimate suffering. <laughs> <laughs> I also love whenever he, whenever Wesley knocks Fezzik out, he says, dream of large women. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> what was that all about? <laughs> Such a random line. <laughs> so great. And, you know, everyone in that uh, behind the scenes was just all these years later just talked about what a – they knew at the time. They didn't know it was going to be a mm-hmm. cult classic, but just what a special experience and yeah. how much fun they had and what a, a gentle, uh, collaborative hand Rob 
Reiner was as the guide. Yeah. Which is really cool to know. Yeah, it is. It yeah, there's it's magic. And that's why we want to make movies is because yeah. it, there is a magic to it. But could you – I mean, if this movie had come out now, we, would, we wouldn't have any patience for right. the kind of lo-fi-ness well, of it wouldn't so be many that. parts of it. Yeah, It would be all CG'd out. Ugh. This is one of those that I would literally write a strongly lettered, uh, worded letter if they ever <laughs> talked about remaking oh, this. Oh, my gosh. No, they you can't. You just can't do they it. They can't. But I've said that before. Ugh. And they do I it. I know. And I, I, it's funny. In the past couple of years, I've tried to come back around to remakes because I used to be such a snob about yeah. the idea of them. And, and I'm like, okay, you know, the, the old movies don't negate – like the new movies don't negate the right. fact that your movie exists. And there are new generations and movies mean things to different people. And the thing that really actually got me was the female Ghostbusters movie. Oh. That movie, I, I know like the – the Ghostbusters fans like sure. hated it and got really upset by it. But I mean, you can watch videos online of these little girls like yeah. in their little with their little proton packs, like getting you know their I signatures know. and and whenever you get to the final battle with Holtzman, uh-huh. I'm just like bawling, yeah. crying when I saw it in theaters, and it just it stuff like that is important. It is. It's bigger than movies, for yeah. Sure. So so I I try. To have an open mind about remakes and reboots and right, like, man, I, I think it's great though when they uh, will remake something with a different race as lead role mm-hmm. or gender, and it gets so much shit online though. It's, it but is. I mean that if you're sitting around reading "Ain't It Cool" <laughs> message boards or uh, Reddit message boards on this stuff, like. There's so many more valuable things to do. There are. And we sh- we should be able to enjoy things for the sake of enjoying things. Yeah. I like that Ghostbusters movie. I thought it was good. Yeah. It I it has yeah, it was really important to me. And Paul Feig actually mailed me a poster because I have a t shirt that says female Ghostbusters are the best Ghostbusters. Uh-huh. And um Rob Cohen was a director on uh on season three of Standing as Evil and I wore it one day because we had gotten into an argument about Ghostbusters. And uh, he took a picture of my shirt and he sent it to Paul because mm-hmm. they're friends. Oh, that's And nice. so then Paul mailed me a poster with like this inscription that was basically like, thank you. I'm so glad that our movie meant something to you. Oh, we, th- we appreciate that's it. That's sweet. I know. That's really great. It did mean something to me though. I have I have a Holtzman uh, uh, necklace, the screw you necklace. I wear it all the time. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, here's my dirty secret, and this will upset a lot of people uh, that are listening. <laughs> I don't think the original Ghostbusters is some untouchable titan of comedy. Yeah. I loved it. Uh, well, I'm not even going to say that. I liked it, mm-hmm. and I still like it, but I don't think it's like the funniest movie ever made. I think some of the Bill Murray stuff's funny, and I enjoyed it when I was a kid, but I don't hold it up as this like – sacrosanct untouchable yeah. thing. I think it it it's just really do. it is because but I think it's just really special to some people because sure. there was again, you know, seeing different kind of characters as the heroes yeah. at the time. Um that yeah, it was special to a lot of people. We'll see what the now they've announced that the new movie's being the third film oh, really? is being made. Yeah. Oh, the third regular the, cast? Yep. They finally have they're finally making it, supposedly. Who's in? Do you know? I don't. But it's it's yeah, it's supposed to be 
a lot of the original cast. Are they going to merge with the uh, nope. reboot? No, they're going to pretend like the girls didn't happen. Huh. Uh, <laughs> what's his name was so good in the reboot? Hemsworth. Oh, uh, Chris Hemsworth. Yeah, he oh, really my funny. God. <laughs> he was great. Uh, let me see. What else do I have on here? Oh, your perfect ears. I thought that was one of the funny lines that goes <laughs> a little unsung and uh, wallowing in freakish misery. It just it seems like such a fun script to sit down and write because mm-hmm. you could do whatever. Like nothing was off base. Yeah. You'd be as silly as you wanted to be as William Goldman, weirdly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the the drama in delivering those lines. Is, yeah. It was just crazy how good it was. Yeah. And the ending is just so sweet. Uh, that that last bit, you know, with the thread running through out the story of because you kind of forget at times that Grandpa's reading to uh, mm-hmm. to cute little uh, Fred Savage. Yeah, uh, when he says that great line, "Since the invention of kisses," it's just so romantic. <laughs> Even if you're like cold and dead inside, right. it's hard not to kind of believe in that a little bit. Supposedly, there is like an alternate ending that was shot where Fred Savage goes to look out the window and. Uh, they're on the horses, and he, like, waves at them. Oh. But I, wonder why I guess we'll never that. see it. Because that would have been cool. Yeah, it would have. But I kind of do like the idea of it, it, like, being, like, that it exists as this tale in this book. Right. That then they, that the grandson and the grandfather then tomorrow, when they read the book again, get to go on the adventure again. Yeah. So you keep it contained to the yeah, story. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Just so, I mean, it was so funny and romantic and sweet, but it was just also a, uh, they managed to honor fairy tales while poking fun at fairy tales. Mm-hmm. It was an interesting little magic trick they did there. Yeah. It, yeah. It, nothing in it is like anything else, which is like the weird part about it. Yeah. The characters and their relationships to each other and, and how strange they all were. Yeah, There's just so nothing weird. else like it. Yeah, and it's it's a movie too where it's it, it is timeless and will never go away. Because just last night I was like, all right, Ruby's three and a half. I was like, when can she see this? Mm-hmm. And pretty soon. Yeah. In the next couple of years, I think. Maybe just you could just skip the machine part if you really machine and maybe the rats would scare her a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, it's like that she will grow up with it. Then if she has kids, we'll show it to her kids. Mm-hmm. And it's just one of those movies you know is going to live forever, kind of like Goonies. Yes. <laughs> oh, Goonies. Goonies, li- Goonies never die. I didn't even mean that. Play on words. <laughs> um, I can't wait for someone to pick Goonies. Yeah. And I tried to get Sean Astin in here when he was in town. <sighs> Emily still has a crush on him. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, and he's one of those people that, um, from what I hear, is just so nice. Yeah. That, like, it's, you know. It's hard meeting. Like working in the film industry, sometimes it's hard meeting people that yeah, it's a risk. You're a fan of. I know. Don't ever meet your heroes. Nope. Uh, when it works out, though, it's pretty great. It is. But when it doesn't, it's crushing. It is. Yep. <laughs> Do you have you been crushed? I have a couple of times. Uh, Do you want to talk about it? Mm-mm. Okay. No, probably not. Fair uh, enough. But yeah, no, I I have a couple of times, and it it more. It's less – obviously, you always have the people that just treat everyone really poorly, which mm-hmm. that almost doesn't quite bother me because uh, – I don't know. I feel like when you grow up in, in this entertainment industry where you have these people that are constantly tending to your needs, mm-hmm. it just 
you exist in this bubble that's like not healthy. Like, no, nope, it's not I, the real world. You look at people like the Vampire Diaries and and stuff like that, where these people from like sixteen to twenty five were on right. this TV show. Like, these are years that are integral to who you are as right. a human being. To then have just people waiting on you, yeah. hand and foot. And I'm not saying that they're like terrible people. I just worry for who they become. Yeah. You know, because because of like existing in this microcosm. Yeah. Um. So, like, just kind of being crappy is, isn't that bad. It's when you then find out that they're, like, misogynistic or homophobic right. or then they make really off-color jokes and, and stuff and comments. And then you're huge like, huge oh. disappointment. Yeah, because we exist in a liberal um, – in a liberal industry. industry. Yeah. yeah. And so it it also just bothers me that people let them think that that was okay to talk right. like that and act like that. Yeah, long enough to where they just are comfortable like that. Yeah. I, someone pointed out to me the other day, like people talk about the liberal Californians right. coming to town, you know, when we talk <laughs> about this religious liberty bill here in Georgia yeah. and, and what's happening. And someone pointed out, and I'd never really thought about it, it's like I think that part of the reason that the – film industry is so liberal, quote mm-hmm. unquote, is because we are based in unions. And in unions, your rates are set by like by the union, like mm-hmm. how much we're getting paid. So no matter if you're a guy or a girl or um or gay or or black or whatever, we all get paid the same thing. Yeah. So it's almost like we have this base set up. Right. For, like, everyone to be treated equally and, like, that's, like, sets this weird, like, tone for everything else yeah. of, like, why we're so liberal in our points of view. Socialist. I know. <laughs> oh, I – yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, it's funny. I was just thinking, though, about that uh, – the treatment of actors and stuff. You know, I was a PA for many, many years and worked in art department some and then had the smallest little taste when Stuff You Should Know was on TV for a year. And – um on set, I always had the urge to like when I heard the walkie go off to like, like somebody needs to get the trash, and I would go to the trash can. And it would be like that PA like <laughs> DNA was still in me, but I even and this was among friends, yeah, with Raymond and yeah. Craig and Karen and everyone. Like, you get treated different, and like I didn't like it, and I saw how it could be just abused. And this was on this tiny little Science Channel show, yeah, and I can't imagine being some big star where just you can get anything you want at any time and hold up the production if you don't want to be on set like Mm -hmm. which those are the big ones and there's a little bit of a need to keep the talent separate from the crew just because the talent has got to perform and they've got to be able to perform the same over and over again and get and and get into their performance Mm -hmm. immediately upon getting to set and Things can become disruptive to that if you're yeah. interacting with the crew and whatnot. So it somewhat makes sense in that regard of like keeping them separate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've definitely I've worked on a couple of like hundred million dollar films, and there there are some funky things that start happening between like some of the like one of the actresses found out that the actor had better like his place was better than right. hers, and so then she wanted her place to be moved. Yeah, and then. They she found this the guy found out that she had like different snacks in her. I mean, it was like this just going back and forth and back and forth. It was just crazy. Yeah. But like that wasn't about her being a girl or him being a guy. It was the agent had negotiated differently. Like that's on the agent, not them. Yeah. And I've also seen on set where um, 
when we had someone really high profile coming in for like a one day thing and you everyone is scared and you have all these things like, oh, they've got to have, you know, wash their hair with yeah. Evian and they got to have all this and you got to have all this. And then they show up and they're fine. And it right. is the agents and managers that are really overdoing mm-hmm. it. And they show up and they're cool and they're like, oh, no, it's no big deal. You can just wash my hair with regular tap water. I was told one time not to look Terrence Howard in the eyes. And then later he was he was we were talking Mm -hmm. and like I told him that they had said that. And he was like, what? What is that? Yeah, I know. I always used to hear that about Prince when he was in the room. No one could look at him. And I bet you that wasn't true. Yeah. As a little bit of the writers, I think, well, from the rock star point of view was that if they couldn't meet those those like uh if they couldn't meet the the things that they wanted uh-huh. then they didn't want them to do the show cuz it meant that they it what they right. were a good venue that's like the the Van Halen uh, right. M- M&M thing i don't know if that translates at all to the film industry maybe probably a little bit i mean yeah. you 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 do have a lot of trust you know when you sign on to do a show as you know you walk onto the set with mm-hmm. these strangers as to what you're getting yourself into and you hope your safety is being taken seriously sure. first most yeah but then yeah, also you hope that it's a professionally run good film cuz like you know you talk about midnight rider and you know we have f- oh, like yeah. friends that were on that and it was a terrible terrible situation like across the board and a lot of people that that were um uh, that were very much in the wrong in that situation, yeah. but and everyone now has an opinion about about it. That oh well, I wouldn't have let them yeah, yeah. do that, and I wouldn't have agreed to this and that. And it's easy to say that, but you, as a crew member, you have a lot of trust that everyone around you mm-hmm. has done their job and has taken care of you. And we don't ever know what we would have done in a situation. Yeah, because everyone. Uh, has been on the jobs where they can look back and say, man, that was so dangerous. Yeah, I've done some stupid stuff just because we didn't have any time to do it right. It's all about time. Yep. And for those of you listening that don't know what we're talking about, Midnight Rider was the Greg Allman biopic that shot here in Georgia that uh, very sadly a camera assistant was killed by a train. And I know it made national news, but if uh, Mm -hmm. that's what we were talking about, so sad. And I know a lot of positive change came out of that. But, like, it shouldn't take a young woman losing her life, you no, know? Just so sad. Not. I'm Britt Morin, and welcome to Teach Me Something New, a new podcast from iHeartRadio and Britain Co. All my life, everyone's told me I should focus on being good at one thing. But the truth is, I'm curious about a lot of things. So one day I decided that my expertise might be to become the world's best generalist. So how do you learn about everything? The answer, make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. This show is about inspirational thinkers, scientists, artists, and CEOs, and the things they've learned that have transformed their lives. Listen to Teach Me Something New on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe now and come along with me as we all learn something new. You got anything else on Princess Bride? I don't think so. It's just a, it's just a magical film. Yeah. 
I I was trying to figure out if I I've definitely seen it more times than Star Wars, which is kind of crazy. oh really yeah. <laughs> you can actually count. Yeah. Wow. Uh, all right. Well, we finish Molly with uh, five questions. Okay. Um, what's the first movie you remember seeing in the theater? Uh, it I guess you were twenty five years old. Yeah, it wouldn't have been until much, much, much later. Um, oh gosh, I would say, yeah. Oh my god, it might even be as late as like Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh wow! I know that's how late it was. I just didn't see things in the theater. Yeah, it wasn't an option. All right. Uh, first R rated movie. Oh, that I ever saw. This sounds. This is going to be really bad. Um, but it was this terrible horror film called Doctor Giggles. It was the first horror movie that I ever saw. <laughs> I don't think I've even heard of it. Oh that. no, it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible horror film. But because it was my first horror film, absolutely, yeah, terrified me. Sure. Yeah, and which is funny because now I live and breathe horror. Right, movies. right. But that just goes to show all these parents that want to like keep their kids in in a protective bubble. Doesn't like work. they're gonna like what they like. I yeah. hate to tell you. So many great horror movies now. It's such a great time. There is. You know. Horror, more than anything, is taking chances on telling stories. Yeah, absolutely. I saw the trailer the other day for the uh, the new uh, uh, Us. Or, uh-huh. Jordan Pill's new movie. Oh my God. And I can, like, handle horror, but that looks fucking terrifying. Also, how is it that we don't – we know so little about that film? You know what I, I mean? Know. Like, in I this day it. and age. So cool. What a great idea. Uh, will you walk out of a bad movie? I have when I was younger. I wouldn't now. I don't think. Okay. I I think that it is very hard to make movies. It is, <laughs> and I think everyone deserves a participation trophy just for completing a film. Yep. Like I, so I wouldn't now. I I did when I was younger, but um, no. Yeah. No way. You've been in the trenches now. I have. It's hard to make movies. Yeah. And yeah, it, it there's there's so many circumstances that are out of our control. Like, you really have to get lucky to complete a film. Yeah. Like, ev- you're almost surprised when movies do get completed mm-hmm. if you've ever worked on yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> and not even on an indie scale. Even, you know, how the big movies, like how many times yeah. they uh, they just money falls through, things happen. Yeah. You know, we uh, very often will work on films that they've set up the production office. We're three weeks into production and then they've pre-production and then they've lost the main actor and then the film is folded. Right. And you never hear about it. Nope. Uh, number four, I tailor to the guest. So I'm going to ask you, hmm. Or how about this? What's your? Do you have a favorite uh, art direction in a film? Yes, definitely. Uh, well, let me even say. Well, let me say for television because television in particular recently. With Legion, the TV show. Haven't seen it. Or Maniac, the yeah. TV show. Oh, I saw Maniac. There's, there's this crazy mid-century modern thing yeah. happening with these really over-the-top creative. Uh-huh. You should definitely watch Legion. Legion is insane. Really? Yes. All right. Yes. Um, Maniac so, was so weird and great. Yes. But like that, there's there's so much that's happening in television. Uh The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel has some of the best art direction so I've ever great. seen. What a beautiful show. Yep. Uh, but as far as movies, I might, this goes out crazy, but I might actually say Gone with the Wind is my favorite art direction. Wow. But again, it says matte paintings of yeah. the backgrounds and, and it's just, again, like this larger than life kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I've seen Gone with the Wind quite a few times too. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a throwback and, uh, you know, Karen Freed, right? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Karen came in and talked about Rebecca, the Alfred Hitchcock film. And it's so fun to go back and look at these movies where all the old tricks are on display, you know. Yeah. Matte paintings and and just real cameras moving through space. and. Yep. Uh, it's pretty great. Back when people did stunts, like, yeah. un- unsafely. <laughs> right, right. It's just crazy. Uh, and then finally, Movie Going 101. Uh, what's your deal at the movie theater? Where do you sit? Do you oh, get anything to eat or drink? I I always have um, cherry Coke and then a small popcorn. Okay. That's what I always have. No candy, really, anymore because I'm chubby. Um, it's just a way of life. Yeah. Uh, and um, I always sit in the so they have the front. The front is always there's always like the the line uh-huh. for the front section and the back section. And I'm always right behind the second row of the back section. So it's kind okay. of in the middle. All right. Um, but it's it's I guess right in front of the middle mm-hmm. where I always sit. But it's because I don't want too much stuff happening in front of me. Right. Um. That then is like a distraction from watching the film. If people are talking their movie, they better be sitting behind me. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> you can't shoot daggers behind you. <laughs> right. You know, well, you can kind of tune them out. It's like out of sight, right. out of mind. But yeah, if it's happening in front of me, I have been known to. To shush. It. Yeah. Well, to get in good conversations with people in the theater. Yeah. I actually had a boyfriend break up with me because I. <laughs> got into an argument people. with a lady <laughs> in a movie theater, and he said that I embarrassed him. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Well, hit the road, buddy. I know, right? Yeah. Yeah, if, if that's what you're worried about, as someone who, like, drinks a lot of whiskey and right. has, has, you know, yeah. If, <laughs> if that, <laughs> best you get out now. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Molly. This is great. No, thank you for having me. All right. All right, everyone, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I should mention that very sweetly afterward, Molly gave me a gift, everyone. She's the first guest that actually brought me a little thank you gift. And it was uh, a collection of like buttons and stickers and a a very lovely card that she wrote. Uh, And it was just really speaks to what kind of person Molly is. She's wonderful and uh, great things will just continue to happen in her career. Um, I'm sure at some point someday you will see a Molly Coffee production on a big screen near you. I uh, have no doubt that that'll happen. So I hope you enjoyed our chat about The Princess Bride. A great, great movie. It was a lot of fun talking to her about it. And uh, that's about it. So, And until next time, um, maybe you should just unsubscribe and stop listening to Movie Crush. But that's inconceivable! Movie Crush is produced, engineered, edited, and soundtracked by Noel Brown and Ramsey Yunt at HowStuffWorks Studios, Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia. The entire first season of This Time Tomorrow is available now to binge from start to finish. In this new iHeart series presented by T-Mobile for Business, join me, Osvaloshin, and Kara Price as we explore the exciting possibilities of the next generation of connectivity. From smart cities to future farms, you'll find out just how much could change with future 5G networks. Listen to This Time Tomorrow on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What if you could learn from the world's most inspiring women? Now you can. Introducing Seneca Women, conversations on power and purpose. We bring you purpose-driven, actionable ideas and insights from leaders such as Tori Birch, Madeline Albright, Katie Couric, Valerie Jarrett, 
Andrea Jung, and many more. Listen to Seneca Women Conversations on Power and Purpose on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.